to succeed as a Black female in the world that we live in, that I needed to try to be basically the best at what I was going to do. And that I couldn't be scared of anything. I needed to be prepared as much as I could be at all times. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice. And we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. It's Danielle. Today, my guest is Shauna Thomas. When Shauna was just 13, she won a college scholarship for Promising Kids in Houston. From there, she started her career in journalism, working her way from intern to senior producer at NBC. She's won multiple awards throughout her career, Emmys, Howard Scripps, a Gracie, and a Peabody. Now she's the executive producer for CBS Mornings, which millions of people watch every day. Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And we worked together at NBC for a brief period of time. I was going to start off by saying that my intro would not be complete without saying that when I first started at NBC News, Shauna was working there. We were in the DC Bureau and I was in total awe of just <laughs> watching her work with such confidence. And I still remember one of my biggest fails that I always tell people to do is like, don't be afraid to email someone. Don't be afraid to ask someone for coffee. Take them out. Like worst thing they can do is say no. And I must have written 10 draft emails to send to you. That was one of the times where I was too shy to send an email. So I'm very excited to have you on today. Well, I mean, with what you've created with the skim, <laughs> there was a period of time where I was like, I really should have gotten to know her. At the <laughs> we like to start things off with a lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Sure. First job on your resume. NBC News is the first thing. And I do still list that I was a news associate at NBC. What is the News Associates program? It's basically a minority recruiting program for NBC News where they bring in, at least the year I got into it, they bring in five people from, usually my group was grad students or people who had just graduated from grad school, to come in and do four different experiences at NBC. So I'd spent three months on the Today Show, three months on the network desk, three months with Meet the Press, and then three months on the political desk. And then the political desk position turned into my like real full-time job at NBC News. I always say that the interview for the News Associates program was the hardest interview I have ever done, probably up until the interview process for this particular position that I'm in now, because I was, you know, an almost graduated grad student from USC, and they fly you to New York, and you go into this room, and it has 10 executives from, like, the president of NBC News at that point on down in the room, and they all just ask you questions for an hour. And I remember it to this day, it was a nerve wracking interview. But if you get through this process, what happens is all those people do remember you. And that kind of helps you along the way too. Do you have any hobbies or skills? I love to sing karaoke. I also am actually trained in musical theater. And so I love to sing. And when I was younger, I played piano and cello. I played in the Houston Youth Symphony for four years. True or false, did you go to school with Beyonce? True. I did go to school with Beyonce. Any other details you would like to, to add to that? 
The truth of the matter is, it was a performing arts high school called the High School for Performing and Visual Arts in Houston, Texas. So sort of like the fame school in New York. Mm-hmm. I was a theater major. Beyonce was clearly a vocal music major. And I didn't have any classes with her. I wasn't really friends with her. And also okay. another mistake in my life, apparently. <laughs> But I know people who are still friends with her, weirdly, but I'm sure she would not remember me. What was the last TV show you binge-watched? I binge-watched Squid Game two weekends ago. And let me tell you, actually not a show one should binge. I, I very much agree with that assessment. Do you watch The Morning Show? No, I do not watch The Morning Show. What's your go-to karaoke song? My go-to karaoke song, almost without fail, is Something to Talk About by Bonnie Raitt. That's a good one. Yeah. Who's someone you would want to have at a dinner party, living or dead? It's going to sound cliche. Madonna. Ooh. Yeah. Huge Madonna fan. Okay. Finish the sentence. What best describes your work day? Working nine till blank. <laughs> My work day doesn't start at nine. I was going to say, <laughs> in, in your case, you know, you got to go with the theme of the show. But yeah. in your case, I was like, it might be 9 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> what time do you actually get up? I get up around 4 a.m. and I am in the office by 5 a.m. Okay. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I consider myself a mix of both. I am an extrovert, but I am someone who can like go to the event, go to the party, talk to anyone, do all that but it's going to cost me something. And so I have to like do the thing where I like regather the strength to do it again at some point. I feel very similarly. Like my recharging is when I don't talk to people. Yep, exactly. Okay, so let's get into it. It seems like, at least from watching you over the years and reading about your early years and prep for this, that you've always been someone to distinguish yourself, whether it was high school, college, internships, first jobs. What do you think made you stand out as a young person? So I think that has a lot to do with my parents and really specifically my mother. For for your podcast listeners, I am a Black female who grew up in the South. And my parents really instilled in me, one, a love and need for education, but two, and we can argue with therapists about whether this was the right way or wrong way to go, but that to succeed as a Black female in the world that we live in, that I needed to try to be basically the best at what I was going to do. And that I couldn't be scared of anything. I needed to be prepared as much as I could be at all times. But this idea that to get noticed at all and not have people think that you are not able to succeed at all, you actually need to be better than everybody else. And while I am not better than everyone else at a lot of things, that sort of attitude from my parents really, I think, fueled my childhood a lot and fueled what I did in education a lot as well as it still plays a role in how I approach jobs now. Now, as someone that is making a lot of the hiring decisions, how do you feel about that outlook when you're interviewing people? I mean, that outlook sometimes makes me sad, but I also try to remember that not everybody has some of the opportunities that I have. And I have a whole spiel about the issues in hiring, especially in television news, But what that makes me do, especially when we are looking for positions, I do try to look for people from schools and places, especially at the lower levels, that aren't Ivy League, that aren't necessarily D.C. or New York City based or L.A. based. 
or major city base, like people from state schools, people from other places. I just interviewed someone recently who was like for a higher level position. But one of the things we talked about is that he has a lot of family in West Virginia. And so like that point of view and looking for people who just have different experiences becomes really important as you're trying to figure out who to hire, especially in this business. You want people from different walks of life and different ways of growing up and from different parts of the country because that helps make your news product a lot richer. How do you get at that in an interview process? So I have a a former boss that has these five or six questions that he makes people like write the answers to as part of the interview process. And I'm not going to say exactly what the questions are, but some of the things I've pulled out are about trying to figure out kind of what makes a person tick and where they're from. And I do. I literally, in interviews, ask people, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And then I always ask them, like, what's a thing you like to do that has nothing to do with television news, that has nothing to do with news? What is your, like, favorite entertainment television? Like, what's your favorite movie? Just try to get at what makes people tick a little bit more and, you know, what is the thing that they have that other people don't have that just makes their lives a little bit richer. And there was someone who I didn't end up hiring, but I will always remember I asked her that question in the interview. And for extra money when she was a teenager, she used to play the bagpipes at like firemen and police funerals in California. And she's a great reporter. It just didn't work out with that particular job. But when you get an answer like that, that makes you want to know more about the person. And that tells you something about the person. I totally agree. I think the most commonly wasted piece of space on a resume is when it says like other skills. Mm-hmm. And I haven't updated my resume in a long time, but I think I had running, which was a lie. And <laughs> like, you know, Microsoft Word. And yeah. I remember one of our previous chief of staff had how much money she had fundraised for hurricane relief. And when I asked her about it, talking about her family and how she grew up and why it was so important. And I always feel like those are the type of people who I want on the team. Yeah. I call them resume Easter eggs, that there's something in your resume that makes someone say, I want to meet you. And on, oh, I answered your other question incorrectly. I forgot. You know what the actual first thing in my resume is? What? I was a lobbyist for the meatpacking industry as my first job out of college. I saw that. And so it says, I worked for the National Meat Association. Yeah. And I leave, and it was a long time ago. I did it for two years before I went to graduate school. And I leave it on my resume because without fail, if I get an interview for a job, it is the first or second question I am asked, which is, what's the deal with the meatpacking industry? Mm -hmm. And... I see it as a way to at least open the door to the interview because it doesn't make any sense on my resume whatsoever. But it taught me a lot about fundraising and Congress and how politics works. And and it tells like another part of my story. But it's just kind of there. And so, so someone is going to have to call me to like feed their curiosity about how the heck that happened. The other thing on your resume that I, I want to talk about is grad school. Yes. And journalism school. And I think the two things that I don't have a degree in either, which is a business degree, and I don't have a journalism degree. How do you think about whether or not grad school, J school is valuable at this point? This is a very good question. I think about this a lot. So I went to graduate school for journalism for a couple of different reasons. One, my undergraduate degree is in political communication. So it was a specialized degree that could have gone the politics route or could have gone the media route. 
but you learned about both. But when I did the two years as a lobbyist, what that convinced me was that I liked the journalism thing. Like I wanted to tell people that this is kind of how politics works. I didn't necessarily want to do it. Also, I didn't do a lot of the basics of things like writing and writing for television specifically and learning to shoot and learning to edit. And so I went looking very specifically for graduate programs that were incredibly hands-on television news graduate programs. That's what I wanted to do. And USC's, the Annenberg Schools, is a like throw a camera in your hand, learn to edit, as well as taking theoretical classes and investigative classes and all that other kind of stuff. But it really is a very hands-on program. And so for me, it was worth it to learn all of these concrete things about actually making the product. Now, I also would say, especially a school like USC, their undergrad program is their graduate program. It's just spread out over four years, whereas I did it over two years for grad school because I didn't need to take like your random science elective anymore. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the undergrad students who I was like a a graduate assistant for came out of USC and were able to get jobs. And yes, not the best paying jobs at the beginning, but they already had all of the skills. And so for me, I felt something was lacking in my resume. And I will say this, I applied for NBC's News Associates program when I graduated from GW. I got a postcard saying they were not interested in interviewing me. I applied for it again while I was a lobbyist. I got a postcard saying they were not interested in me. When I applied with a graduate degree from the University of Southern California, I got an interview and then I got a second interview. And so for me, that ended up working out. I think there are ways to gain the skills when it comes to journalism from undergrad. I think it involves having internships. I think it involves working like at your student paper and your student television station. If you go to schools that have that, if you don't like really trying to get plugged in with the local radio station, local TV, if you're in a town that has that, as well as producing stuff yourself on YouTube. But I don't think it is the answer for everybody. It is the answer for me. And I'm going to be really candid here. I don't know if I would have done it if I hadn't been given a scholarship. I want to switch gears. You've been vocal about talking about how you've been in therapy for a while. Do you think it's helpful in your career setting? Yes, I do. Because I think the moments when you are having that Zoom therapy session or back in the day when you actually used to physically go to someone's office, that creates like a moment to reflect and not have your phones next to you and to think about one, how the news is affecting me, how the amount I work, because I've worked a lot before this job too, is affecting me. And then what kind of person does that make me, especially in relationships with other people? And what do I forget to do? And am I losing like my compassion and things like that? And so it is a way to build into my life a moment to like look inward, but stop for a second. And I do think that's actually really important. I think that's really important for journalists We cover a lot of heavy topics, heavy things. We consume a lot of information and we move so fast a lot of the times that we don't do a great job of taking stock about how that affects us. Like in the moment, I think it makes you a very good journalist. I think as you like take a step back, you may miss some things if you don't sort of have that level of compassion because you've turned off so many of your emotions to be able to get through the day that you may not see something properly. I think the other thing, and this kind of segues into what I want to get your thoughts on, is when you become a manager, learning how your own baggage and where you are, whether you think it affects how you manage people or not, it goes hand in hand at times. You went from being 
a correspondent to being the boss at a morning show. And when you're in journalism, I always think it's astounding how different the skill sets are between reporting, between what you need to be successful in that realm and the aggressiveness, the timelines, the assertiveness, and then a totally different skill set when you move into more of the executive positions. What has your path been like as you've learned to manage? You know, when you bring up the correspondent thing, I did walk this very weird line. That was when I was at Vice News of I managed the Washington, D.C. Bureau and was originally just hired to be a senior producer and a bureau chief for Vice. I was not hired to be on air and sort of had enough on air experience. And we also didn't have enough people uh, because the show started in October of 2016 who knew how to talk about politics. And I did Mm -hmm. that. I kind of found myself on air. You're right. They are two different things. I think one thing that my boss at Vice News, what piece of advice he gave me when I moved into this job was you actually have to be very careful about your emotions in meetings. And he said this thing, and I realized he was right about it, that like the moment he walked in the door in the Brooklyn offices of Vice, people were like clocking him to see what kind of mood he was in. And that could change how people approached him. That could change how people approached our morning meeting. That changed everything. And he had to be kind of really mindful about that. I realized very early on in this position that I have to be mindful of that. Like, I do have to give my energy to the staff. I want to give my energy to the staff. I want them to make the best possible product. And it needs to come from a place of being, no matter how I feel, excited to be here and willing to help them at all times. And I really hope even in this short time I've been here, they feel that way because I'm willing to pick up the phone at all times. I am willing to help them. I'm willing to try to like piece through stuff. It's not about being friends with the staff. You know, I am the executive producer. I am in a different category than they are. But it is about being approachable and not scaring them so that they feel you are willing to help at any time. And I do think one of the things that I've learned, especially the difference between kind of being a producer or a correspondent with a bunch of other people is you have to have that hair of separation from them. We've been in a pandemic, so I'm not really like going out and having a drink at the bar with my staff anyway (laughs) at this point, but I'm not sure, unless it was sort of like an organized holiday gathering or something like that, I'm not totally sure I would. It's a tough change on how you remain approachable and also keep that line. But say we're not really going to be friends outside of this thing. But I do think it's an important hair of distinction. I think with certain levels, you know, if we ever get to a place where everyone feels comfortable, I have senior producers, I think they're great. Someone wants to invite me over for dinner with their family. I'm I'm willing to do that. But I know that there's a line that I can't cross in this particular job. So I want to talk about what came after NBC, because what I love about your resume is you've got grad school. Well, you meet packing lobbyists, then you've got grad (laughs) school, then you've got NBC, and then you do some different things. From 2016 to 2019, you were at Vice News Tonight. Those, Those were intense years to be covering politics in America. Although when I think back on it, I don't know if there hasn't been a a tough year recently to cover that. Ultimately, Vice News tonight was canceled. How did you start to think about what was next for you? So we found out Vice News Tonight on HBO was going to get canceled months before we actually ended the show. And so that gave me a little space to think. 
about what other kind of experience I wanted or what else I wanted to learn. That summer, I went out to LA for a week and had meetings set up for me to meet like on the entertainment television side and on the entertainment content side. I talked to a lot of people. I was pretty sure I was going to leave once the show was actually over, but I did want to ride that ship all the way down until the last day because that show was such a great experience. But what I will say is leaving NBC and NBC gave me a great education in television news and I got to do so many things. It was really scary to leave NBC and leave the comfort of the longest running show on television and people who I knew and I still love. But once I like did it once, it didn't seem that scary to do it again. And the Quibi thing, I'd heard about Quibi. Someone had approached me about it probably in like April of 2019, but I wasn't ready to leave and I knew I wasn't going to leave. And then once it was very clear that the show was over, over, I went back to that person and just had a conversation. And what I realized that I could get out of Quibi was, okay, so this is a startup. This is an actual startup. Everyone thought Vice was a startup, but as you remarked, like it has been around since it, the 1990s. Yeah, it was hugely different between Vice oh, yes. and Quibi, which was really a startup. Yeah, and I mean, also a $2 the, billion dollar startup, yeah. but a startup nonetheless. Yes. So it became this thing of, as I thought about it more, okay, so I can help make something new. They do have an interesting product in terms of the actual technology of what they were trying to do. I would still get to stay kind of news adjacent because I would get to work with BBC and CBS and NBC and production companies in L.A. and learn a different way of making content. The way a production company in L.A. does it is very different than how NBC News does it. So what I saw was all these opportunities to learn. And one of the things I love about journalism in general is literally people pay me to just learn new stuff all the time. And in this case, Jeffrey Katzenberg was going to pay me to learn about how do you actually do this. Um, some of the people who worked there on the technology side were so generous with their time and explaining how things work, so, which would help us think about how we needed to help the companies build their content. And so it was just, you know, it's one of those things that this may work, this may not, but, you know, why? It was like, it's just that thing. It's that why not? Why not? I love that you said that because one of the things that makes me sad about being someone who, like, I am so thankful for my training at, at NBC and yes. that I got my foot in the door there. I feel like I had such an incredible opportunity to learn from people that are some of the best in the business by far. I also think that it was terrifying to leave and it was also time for me personally to leave. What I see again and again, and when I interview people for, edit roles, there's this fear. And I don't think it's unique at all to this, but because I'm in the space, I see it a lot with journalists of going to do something different, which is ironic given how quickly the technology is changing. And what I love about your story is like you had that training, you went to Vice, wrote it out, learned from it, didn't totally work. And then Quibi very publicly in some ways didn't work. And I love how you thought about what you wanted to get out of the roles. Yeah. I mean, it. I, I would, do I wish Quibi had worked? And was there that little person in the back of my mind that was like, will my stock be worth millions of dollars one day in the deal I have made? Yeah, that person was totally there. But it was also, it was an opportunity to just do something different and learn something else 
while also still capitalizing on some of the skills that I already had. And I'm not sure how many times you get that opportunity. And so my thought was, okay, if this doesn't work out, I can find another job or I'll go do something else. But it really came down to this is a great opportunity. Now, the one thing I will say is I got, and this happens to me, and it happened with both the Vice job and the Quibi job, are both jobs I turned down the first time I was offered them. That's fascinating. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So with Vice, I literally got the phone call and got offered it while I was at one of the conventions. I think the Republican National Convention, like managing the the digital side for NBC News and how they were, like the logistics of how the digital reporters were getting access at the convention. And I got a phone call from someone who used to work for NBC and they offered me the job and I was like, I'm not leaving. That's crazy. I'm not doing that. And I said, no. And she asked me again and I said, no. And she was like, well, okay, but I think Josh Tarangel, who was at Vice at the time, is going to call you. And what he asked me to do was meet him. He was like, I will be in Washington, D.C. on the Friday after the Republican National Convention. When do you get back? And I was like, I literally get back that morning and then I must go to the office to produce Meet the Press. And he's like, sure, come have lunch with me. And I was like, I really don't think I'm going to. He's like, no, have lunch with me. And he had lunch with me. And he just, we talked one more time. And then I kind of went through this other process at NBC because my contract was up. And I had this moment while I was on the train back from New York to Philadelphia to go to the Democratic National Convention. And it was raining. And I was like, oh my God, if the thing he has described to me is as interesting as, uh, or as close to being as interesting as he says he's going to make it, I will feel so dumb if I'm watching this on HBO in two months in my apartment. And, you know, why not take this opportunity? And so I ended up from the Democratic National Convention working for NBC, calling him back and taking the job. And then I actually quit, though I didn't like walk out of the convention and not work. I actually worked for three more weeks after that. But I told the president of NBC News I was leaving at the Democratic National Convention. How did that <laughs> Which go? Which in retrospect was not, yeah. my be- was not my best yeah. way to do it. But yeah, I felt like I just had to, because they were waiting on me to sign paperwork and a bunch of other stuff. And I just felt like I had to do it and I had to come clean and I had an opportunity to talk to her. And she got it. And then I had to tell a couple of other people and that was a little bit harder. So my fear really, really did play a role because you have something that's so concrete and these this business is so volatile and so weird that you're like, do I let go of this thing that I do truly love to do? And that is solid to do something where you don't know if it'll happen. And with the Quibi job, I had a job offer from another news organization as well. And I thought I was going to take it and I turned it down. And the same thing happened. I like went sort of inward and thought about like, do I want to miss this chance to like work on this thing that might end up being amazing? And I I had to call Jeffrey Katzenberg back and basically grovel a little bit in the nicest way possible and, and ask for the job. And I did. What a great story. I love that you shared that. Um, finally, as we start to wrap up, I want to talk about something that you alluded to in in the beginning, the media industry, not known for being uh, the best place at times for women and people of color, both when it comes to getting a foot in the door and when it comes to climbing the ladder. You've been in the industry in different roles for a while now. What have you seen change and what do you want to see more of? 
I think what I've seen change is the acknowledgement of what you just said, of that there are, there are a lot more people in, in the industry that look like me than did 15 years ago when I started for real. But I don't think it was as much of a conversation. Yes, I was part of a minority recruiting program. But one thing that I sort of thought for a while at NBC is a lot of times the other people of color I'd see in sort of producer positions or even senior producer positions above me were also people who came from that program. And so that's a good thing, but you also want people to get in organically sometimes and not have to fight it out for these five or 10 spots in this specific program that is designed to bring in minorities. And so I think the way people think about hiring and how you, and it's sort of what I was talking about before, like we need to go physically to to HBCUs and actually try to recruit on campuses, recruit at state schools, do these things. I think the conversation about how do you make sure people who who don't go to Harvard or NYU or or even USC know that there is a place for them in these jobs and in these companies, I think people are much more upfront about that now. So I think that's changed. And I think we've seen the efforts of that to a certain extent. And I think as we especially have played things out over the last couple of years and the racial reckoning, if that's what we want to call it, news organizations have really seen how much better their coverage is and how much more varied it is and how you're thinking about things and taking different angles, even at like as you cover the story, because they have people with different life experiences in their newsrooms. And it's really, really hard to deny that. And on a very base business level, when you have those different experiences in the newsroom and people might approach a story a little bit differently, and I don't mean with a bias necessarily, I mean just like thinking about there's this other angle that you might not think of that I'm thinking of that we can report on over here, or have you thought about talking to this group of people, or have you thought about talking to this type of family? That if your coverage is more wide and more diverse in how you think about it, you will literally bring in more people to listen, watch, read, whatever, because they feel that someone has, you know, gotten into their heads and heard, like, the question that they're asking that they want answered. And so, you know, as I said, from a business level, more eyeballs is actually more money. And I think businesses are starting to realize that, too. And so I'm not going to say it's all altruistic by any means, but the product is better, the possibility of reaching a larger audience is there. And I think a lot of places have realized we have to like really make a concerted effort to make our newsrooms more diverse. And I do want to say, when I say diverse, I don't necessarily mean just race or people who look like me. I think a big problem in journalism is socioeconomic diversity and who gets hired. And a lot of that has to do with the, the pay being so low when you start in these jobs as well as religious diversity, as well as, like I said, what state you grew up in. All of that should come into play as you are developing the pool of people you are hiring from. And so I do think that has gotten better. I want to get to a listener question before we Mm -hmm. wrap up from Jackie. Shauna, Jackie wants to know, are there any routines you've developed that have been particularly helpful in moments of transition? I do not have a good answer for that. (laughs) That's okay. I I don't. I'm sorry. I I actually have not developed those routines other than I feel like there's a couple of people when I'm trying to figure out whether to take a job or to explore a different type of job. 
who I will call up and ask their opinion. But really, I think the one thing in the transition, especially between Vice and Quibi and then Quibi in this job, is I did actually take time off. I did not do that with from NBC to Vice for various reasons. I took one day off and then I started at Vice. That was a mistake. I don't think I really had a choice, but that was a mistake. That's a good thing to know. Yeah, I took real actual time off between the two jobs just to recharge so that people were going to get something closer to the best of me when I started. Last question. Who is someone else we should have on the show? Oh, that's a good one. When I was talking about the story about telling the president of NBC News that I was quitting at the Democratic National yes. Convention, and I said she got it. Her name is Deborah Turness. She was the first actual female president of a news division. She's a great suggestion. We have not had her. I would talk to her. Shauna, thank you for taking the time uh, and congrats on everything. No, thank you. This has been fun. And congratulations to you on everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.